Welcome to the 30-Minute Hour. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss business, sports, politics, and whatever's on our mind. I'm your host, Eric Twiggs, your procrastination prevention partner. And joining me on camera on this episode of the 30-Minute Hour is Ted Fells, our business strategist extraordinaire and all-around good guy. Hello, all. Hello, all. All it's, right. But also, it's hot in here. It's hot in here. It's hot in here. So, <laughs> air conditions out, I guess, on the weekends, but we're going to make the best of it. So, if I, like, pass out, just pour some of this water on me or whatever, just keep the show going. So, as you can see, we are transparent on the 30-minute hour. We keep it real, let you know what's really going on. That's right. Also joining me is Britton Smith. Britton is the Renaissance man. He's the man who refuses... To be pigeonholed. Britain? <laughs> Did we lose Britain? Britain must, must be in a pigeonhole. Yeah, he, he refused to be pigeonholed, so he dropped off the line. We must have lost him somehow. Hopefully he'll call back in and we can get him back. Britain, are you on mute? Yeah, we must have disconnected from Britain. Yeah, well. He'll join back in when he can. So he, he's the wild card okay. for the show. You never know where he is. You never know if he's going to be on. Right. He, he calls from a remote location. Like we always say there's a remote chance that he's really where he says he is. Right? <laughs> That's, it's a remote location. Okay. Well, you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on YouTube. All you have to do is type in the 30-minute hour into the search bar and you will find us and as you've seen already we are not your everyday podcast we're not your normal podcast so speaking of which ted there's something that's on my mind okay, all right. it's a good thing on a podcast you right you should have some thoughts <laughs> something, that that's normally helpful on a podcast to have right. some things that are on your mind Absolutely. here's what's on my mind it, it's a question which problem do you want? That's what's on my mind. Which problem do you want? And, and I really, I was inspired by this because I saw a study. They studied these lottery winners from Texas. Okay. That they won the lottery and then they tracked them like 20 years later. And it was something surprising. It was 70% of them said that winning the lottery was the worst thing that happened to them. I, I just thought that was crazy. You would think winning the lottery would be great a great thing. And I hear it like a lot of these studies, and a lot of times I think, well, you know what? Allow me to be a part of that study. Let's see if yeah. I can handle the seven that's, figures. That's right. That's right. And come out on the other side right. happy and fulfilled. But, but I thought that was interesting. I, I think the problem is, here's, here's what I think about it. I think the problem is that we think that the next level mm. is an escape from our current problems okay and we think that next level so we think oh you know what i've got this issue i don't like my current situation if i could just win the lottery that's going to make everything better i'm not, not going to have any problems anymore mm. right or hey i'm not making a lot of money but once i get that promotion <laughs> everything is going to be much better right, right. once i become a full-time entrepreneur like ted I'm not going to have any problems anymore. 
but but it, it's a trade off, and I don't think a lot of our listeners see that because they still come up to us, they come up to you. I want to be like you, Ted. So tell I me mean, what you started. You started in the government as an employee, sure. and then you branched out to become CEO extraordinaire. Well, what were some of the problems that you traded off? So in the government, uh, well, just working for someone, right? You had to be right. somewhere at a certain time every day. Uh-huh. Uh, you had someone telling you what you had to do right. and when you had to get it done. Um, and then it was just, you know, you just really didn't kind of control things a lot. Like the, like you were put into certain places, you had to have certain things right. done. So you were in a certain type of, you know, in, a, in a box. Right, you're in a box. You know, some of your uh, creativity, you know, wasn't uh, necessarily, uh, you know, as of a value as you would, may want it to be. Right. You know, so, got this great idea. Yeah, that's good. We'll, we'll come back to that, right? Right. You know, so those are some of the types of things that you deal with. Um, now, fast forward to starting a business. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you still have someone that's kind of driving you. You have customers that drive you. Right. Right. Um, sure, you can start the day whenever you want. Like people say to me all the time, Ted, you are, man, you work for yourself. You don't even have to go in. You know, you can go in whatever time you want to go in. Right. You know, why are you working on the weekend? Right. Right. Yeah. They're right. Mm-hmm. But again, if you don't kill it when you work for yourself, you don't eat. See, when mm-hmm. I was working for the government, there was a check every two weeks. Hmm. It was no question. We right. had, I didn't send out no invoice. I just had to go in and, you know, fill out a time card, right? But mm-hmm. there was a check every two weeks, mm-hmm. you know. And there's some weeks that maybe I wasn't on my game. I still got the same check every two weeks. Right. And when you're working for yourself, you could be at the, your optimal level. Right. Like you're grinding it out. Mm-hmm. And it may not be a check. Right. So, so you're, you're trading problems again. So the question is, which problem do you want? Do you want the problem of a lack of freedom or do you want the problem of financial uncertainty? It depends on what day of the week. There's <laughs> <laughs> times I've been like, man, it was good knowing that I had that check coming. Right. Right. But then, you know, but then there's, you know, the things that you see when you start your own company and, and you start, the company starts to, you know, become successful and. You know, some of those things, I mean, you know, it's very rewarding, but, right. you know, it's a benefit to, to both sides of this. Right, it's a benefit to both sides. Yeah. But I, I think people miss that whole trade-off thing. Oh, yeah. And the whole, que- asking themselves that question, well, you know, what problem do you really want? That this this next level isn't going to solve, isn't going to make me problem-free. Yeah. That yeah. we need, they need to understand that. It sounds like Britain might have joined back in. <laughs> Who knows? Or just somebody rang a bell. Do, do huh? I just ask? Or do, yeah. Just Britain, are you there? I am here. Uh, <laughs> so, Britton, Britton, what happened? Did you just, like, stop to get some pick of wings or something? I mean, how did you just drop off? Did you off? get bored with the conversation, <laughs> decide to hang up on us? No, you know what? I stopped. I'm driving through the countryside, picked a few daisies, <laughs> you know, you played in the wind a little bit, rolled in the grass. <laughs> All right. But I'm back. I'm back. So, Britton, we were talking about... <laughs> This thing of you know, which problem do you want and how people think that the next level is an escape from their current problems, but in reality, it's just the next level is a graduation to a set of different problems. So talk to us about that. I mean, you're 
you're the national political director for the Kappas, Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity, and you. What's your experience with that whole idea of trading problems when you go to the next level? You know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, the concept of you know trading problems, and you know we're always seeing something that looks better, looks glamorous, uh, looks like we really want it, but not knowing what it costs to keep that mm, yeah. or even obtain it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I look at it as the same way every kid in the world always hated being a kid and wanted to grow up. <laughs> Every kid wanted to say, you know, I hate bedtimes, I hate going to school, I hate Brussels sprouts, I can't wait till I'm an adult. <laughs> then they get to be an adult, and you wish someone let you go to bed. You wish <laughs> someone fed you every day. You wish... <laughs> <laughs> you, like, you wish you had to go to school for three hours or for for six seven hours as opposed to work for ten. Hey, <laughs> Britton, I, 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 you you'd be willing to squeeze up in a in a car seat now if you had an opportunity, huh? <laughs> <laughs> if you had, if you had the chance, I would definitely be somebody else's problem right now. That's right. <laughs> but but and and that's the interesting thing, you know. And every time we give kids advice about that. We tell them, don't rush to get old, you know, take your time. But one of the things that we really want them to understand is to appreciate the process and everything you need to learn yes. going through to the next steps. Mm. Everything that will make you a better adult. Um, and that's why I appreciate every opportunity I've had to uh, represent my fraternity, represent my organization utilize all my skill sets and assets, both politically, uh, socially, to prepare me to handle that next level, that next stage. So it's really more so not which problem that I wanted, it was how to appreciate the process and deal with the next plateau. So you have to appreciate the process. Uh, I think that's excellent. And hopefully our listeners really can appreciate that little nugget of wisdom and, and I think as we talk about... Let me say this. One thing about Britton, though, when he gets disconnected, but when he comes back, he usually has some real good stuff. He does. So, yeah, that was, I, that was good, Britton. <laughs> Change the theme and everything. Right, well, Appreciate well, the process. Right, right. <laughs> what it took... For me, y'all want the problem of me being in the studio, but you gotta appreciate the problem of me being on the road. <laughs> but here's the thing: I, we have to see problems as part of the solution, right? I, I think we 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 fall in love with the end result. We we see Ted say, "I want to be like Ted. He's got this big time CEO company." Or hey, I'm gonna be like an author like Eric, but I think you, you have to see see the problems as a part of the solution. And anybody that's at a level you aspire to, they're probably solving bigger problems. Mm. They're probably dealing with more problems. Mm. They're helping more people. Yeah. So I, I think that's really the key. And, and the focus on I always say clarity is a starting point of success. Mm. To get clear on your purpose. Because more than likely, your purpose has something to do with solving bigger problems and helping more people. Mm, good point. Right. That, that's the takeaway. And I, I think if you do that, and if you're asking that question and you understand the trade-offs, 
will be driven to succeed. I agree. I agree. And, and speaking of being driven to succeed, I think this is the perfect time to introduce our guest. Okay. That's the title of one of her books, Driven to Succeed. Driven to Succeed. Like how I worked that in there. All right. Okay. All right. Some yeah. prep work. You did a little prep work. You did a little prep work. I just had to do some homework this week. All so right. You didn't do like me, just, just jump on the, just jump in, read the bio on the way here. All That's right. A little yeah. different than me. Yeah, I decided to prepare. All right. So our guest, she's an educator, okay. consultant, she's a speaker, she's a best-selling author, and she's the founder mm. of Aunt Hattie's Place. All right. In 2018, she was nominated and inducted into the Maryland Women's Commission Hall of Fame. She served as a tenured professor of education at Coppin State University for 22 years. Mm. She has the distinction of being the first female vice president at Coppin State in the university's 100-year history. She, she's the author of Driven to Succeed, Lessons Learned Through Faith, Family, and Favor. And she's written, also, she's also written a cookbook uh, titled Aunt Hattie's Cookbook. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the 30-minute hour Dr. Hattie Washington. Hello, hello, everyone. It's my dear pleasure to be with you today, this oh, afternoon. Good afternoon. And before I get started, Eric, I'd like to congratulate you on the many things you're doing in the community to give back and to let your mission of discipline and procrastination uh, be professed and profound throughout the community. Because in my years of teaching teachers and raising foster boys and raising two accomplished daughters, believe you me, procrastination is one of those skills that everybody has unless they're conscious of trying to overcome it. And there is a way to overcome it. And you have a wonderful strategy for that. So I want to congratulate you on the thing you're doing and also your whole team. Thank you, Dr. Washington. And, and it's truly an honor. Dr. Dr. Washington and I met a couple of years ago at a book signing and she's just so positive and so inspirational. And I just, I, we have to have her on the show. So I'm really looking forward to us talking. So Aunt Hattie, that, that's how we, we know Dr. Washington, mm. Aunt Hattie. Okay, okay. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, so tell us about yourself growing up in the country, and your school closed down in 1959 due to the resistance of the um, Brown versus Board of Education case. So, tell us about that experience and how the school closing in Prince Edward County impacted your life. Well, that's the, at the point I started the book because um, I just felt for years after my school, two-room schoolhouse closed down in Prince Edward County, and I was 11 years old, didn't know too much about racism at the time, didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew my father, being one of the deacons in the church, was going to a lot of meetings. 
and they were meeting in churches and homes, and so we knew something was up, but we didn't know exactly what it was. And so my father called all of us together and said, um, Hattie called me sister, sister, you and Terry and Jean and Junior Boy, my brother, are going to Norfolk. And um, the other kids were my half-brothers. They're going to Baltimore. And I didn't understand what and why when he explained to me that the schools would be closing in the fall mm. and didn't know how long they were going to be closed. At that time, they ended up being closed for five years. And I would be staying with my mother's sister. Now, of course, my mother died when I was three, so I never met my mother's sister. The only mother I knew was my stepmother. So I found out that the schools were closing. I was going out of town, and then my stepmother was not my real mother. Hmm. So to find out all of that at one time, I was devastated. Yeah. You know, wow. and, I, and I'm being with strangers, so I really became a foster kid. Hmm. And so that impacted me. So for all of my teenage years in Norfolk, going to Jacob uh, Elementary School and Abraham Lincoln and Booker T. Washington High School, I was in a trance, and I didn't know it until, you know, as you became an adult, and you found out that you really didn't want to make any friends because you were afraid they were going to be taken away from you. You just didn't want to get involved with any activities because I didn't feel like I belonged. And then I stayed with an aunt who didn't believe in education, so it didn't come out to anything I had in school. And so it was really a traumatizing time. And sometimes you didn't know you're traumatized until you become grown and you look back at your life and say, you know, I was really traumatized. Hmm. And that's why I did this. And as a result of that, it caused me to open up a foster boys home hmm. when I became an assistant superintendent of schools for Baltimore City. When I met foster kids that didn't have a home, didn't know where they're going to sleep that night. And you look around in your school system and you say, where are these kids? Or, oh, they're in a foster home, so they've now moved to another foster home. Or they moved to another foster home. I was so interested in where did they move? Nobody knew. So one of the first things I did was met with Kurt Schmoke, who was mayor at the time, mm -hmm. and the judge. I want to know where every one of my, my foster kids went, that they moved to another group home or foster home. And I want you to send a taxi, a van, or something to get my kids and bring them back to my same school. I don't where they live now. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got started with foster kids. And then later, I just thought, well, let me take them home for one night. And then the one night became one week, one month, and then 22 years later, I raised over 100 foster boys. Wow. Hmm. So as you said, the way you grow up sometimes impacts who you are and make you do the things that you know in your heart you got to do, whether you consciously felt you were born to do them. No one would have ever told me I would have been opened up a group home for kids while at the same time I'm the vice president of Coppin State. Hmm. Now, how busy is that? And I was in charge of raising the money. Wow. So God put it on my heart to do, and so he made the whole process um, very successful. Wow. And so for 22 years, you've been doing this. You've got young men from ages of 8 to 21 
So why why was it these boys slash young men and not girls? <laughs> I taught special education once I graduated from Norfolk State uh, with the BS in elementary education and a minor in special ed. I did my student teaching in a special education school, and I found out that many of those kids in special ed were black males, mm -hmm. but they were smart as they could be that you had behavior problems. Right. And I could reach those, those boys. And so I decided that when I found most of the foster kids in my school system when I was the vice president of Clarkson State and prior to that assistant superintendent for Baltimore City Schools, most of the foster kids were boys. Hmm. And so I thought if I could save the boys and put them on the right track, I don't care how disrupted girls are, they usually bounce back a little faster mm -hmm. than the boys. And most of the special ed classes I taught were mostly boys mm -hmm. who were very smart, just behavior problems, knucklehead behavior problems. Mm -hmm. But I could handle them. So I thought if I could keep them 24-7 and give them a good home to lecture schools, since I was trained the teachers anyway at Compton, put them in the schools where I trained the teachers. And then we could maybe turn these boys around and put them on the right track. So that's why I try to keep boys, uh, not girls. So I, I, I remember being at your, they, they, they were doing like a retirement celebration for you at Coffin State. And <laughs> you, you had one of the young men who was in your program stand up. And, and this really inspired me that he was, I guess he was really troubled when he first went to, to your house and then now he's this productive member of society with a family of his own and that really moved me do you, i'm sure you have hundreds of success stories like that is, is there one in particular that stands out to you of someone that you saved oh my goodness well that well let me tell you about that young man that young man went to a school on the east side of baltimore he was hanging around with a bunch of boys and he was a smart kid, but he would not want those boys to see him with a book. Hmm. So if he had, because all of my boys had to have a book with them at all times. I don't want to see a ball without a book. Wow. So he had to have a book. So he would hide his book from his uh, friends. And one of the friends saw the book one day and said, oh, you're acting white. Hmm. So you read it. And so he said, no, it's not, that's not my book. It's not my book. To make a long story short, he was suspended from school for some reason hanging out with these kids. So he came to cop and sat in front of my desk, because I was the vice president at the time. And I said, um, you are too smart to hang around those young men if they're not going anywhere. You are a, head, a brain in your head, you got a head on your shoulders. And so I said, so when I come back, I was on my way to the Philippines to do a keynote speech. I said, so when I come back, we're going to go out to your school and talk about what's going on. So when I was in the Philippines, I was a keynote speaker, and I said in my speech, have a young man who is very smart, but he doesn't want anybody to see his books and blah, blah, blah. So the president of the University of the Philippines came up to me. And she said, you know, we are Jesuit University. I said, well, no, I didn't know that. She said, we have a connection in Maryland. And so I make a connection for your kid. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, I didn't know what you meant. So when I got back, I got a call from Cabot, Cabot Hall, from the headmaster over there. He said, I understand you got a kid you want to get in a different environment. And I didn't know anything about Cabot Hall. 
which either one of those pristine private schools for boys. Right. So they wanted him to come over and interview him and give, take a test. He aced the test. Wow. Aced the test. Hmm. They accepted him at Cabot Hall. He became the captain of the football team, the captain of the basketball team, the A student, and one was a um, unsung hero of the year with a full four-year scholarship to, co to, to co college. Hmm. And so that was that one kid. He's now the Johns Hopkins, and uh, he's an engineer, and then he just changed to pharmacy. But one of the, the first kids I got in my home who never stayed in a habit place, stayed in my own personal home, hmm. he now is an IT guru, I said guru, because he just got promoted to go to Austin, Texas, to head up an office in Austin, Texas, I think with 28 people under him who graduated from Coppin in IT, and this kid came to me in special ed, mothers on drugs, and one thing. So he is one of the, the unsung hero of a case study. Another one of my boys, uh, first kid I got at Unhattie's place, was eight years old at the time, in special ed, on medication. Now he is a teacher, graduated from Coppin all A's, mm -hmm. a teacher in Florida, it just told me a couple of weeks ago that he's being tapped as assistant principal of the school. He's only been teaching three years. So just to give you an idea of what can happen to our young men, we to give them the right environment, the right training, and give them a, a high expectation goal, and they do rise to the occasion. So that's just a few. I can talk about, in fact, I'm going to do a book. I think I'm going to pick 20 of them and do an anthology and just tell where they were, how they, uh, what they think they got from unhappy place, and then where they are now and how they plan to give back to the community. So I'm working on that book as well. Yeah, I mean, that that's just amazing. I mean, the, the impact you're having on lives, I mean, that's a generational impact because they're positively positively impacting the people coming after them. And it all started with you yeah. uh, reaching out to them. Yeah, it's just interesting. All of these boys are the first in their family to finish high school. Mm. Wow. And then they'll be the first, of course, in their family to finish college. So look at that legacy to these kids and their families because they're going to raise kids who are going to be understood that they are going to go to college. Or, and I always tell you, you don't have to go to a four-year college. You can go to a community college. You can go to, but I want you to go someplace. Hmm. So when I take them into my boy's home, I give them that interview. You know, you going to go someplace. If you don't want to go to college, you don't want to finish high school, then this, this is unhappy place, not the place for you. Hmm. You can go and be nothing someplace else. Hmm. But I know you got the skills, and you just need a helping hand, not a handout. So this is a place for you, but you're going to have to work for it, and you can do it. But you got to first believe it. Be willing to put forth the work, and then you will succeed. That's that's just that's amazing. I'm just sitting there thinking about everything that you're saying and thinking about how many uh, young men, young boys across the country that have probably been in situations where, you know, they were seen as someone in special ed, didn't think that they had what it really 
took and then didn't get the opportunity to to have a, a kind of an interaction with on Hattie's place. You know what could happen with with many of those and 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 others. And I mean, how do you how do you take this type of concept and you know kind of you know reach more? Right. Well, in my book, I talk about how anybody can create winners, hmm. not wait to pick winners. Because if you wait to pick them, they may not be there. Hmm. We have to create our winners. And I talk about how I tell my kids right from the beginning who they are. Like accept them into a heaven place. You are smart. You are beautiful. You are, you are great. You are nice. You're handsome, and one of them said to me one Thanksgiving, he said, hey, we're going to add this to our, what I call it, unhappy pledge. I'm great, I'm smart, I'm nice, and um, I'm handsome. They added that. And then they added, and I'm thankful. Mm. And I said, that we can go. So we have a, a right over the mirror in my boy's home, as you go out the door to school, we have the unhappy pledge. I'm great. I'm smart. I'm nice. I'm handsome, and I'm thankful. Mm. So they look at themselves in the mirror when they walk out the door, just in case somebody does not know who you are. That you they see as a foster kid. You know who you are. Mm. You're great. You're smart. You're nice. You're lovable. We have that too. And then you are handsome, and you're thankful. And so you can pick a kid from any place. And bring them to the standard. One of my boys, all of my boys knew no earrings. Mm. We're not having any earrings. We're not having any pants hanging down to your backside. I better not see your underwear. We're not having any hats on backwards. And you're going to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, to the staff mm. and the board members and any supporters. No, yeah, no, mm hmm. How do you spell that? Mm. Speak English. You say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And then, of course, they had to get a half cut every two weeks. Hmm. So those were my standards. So one, one of them came to me one time with some dread. And I said, look, let me tell you why these are my standards. I've been in administration too long. So I've seen how people discriminate against you anyway because you're African American. But if you go in there with earrings and tattoos and, and uh, your dreadlocks, they won't ever tell you why you never got the job. Things have changed now since then. And I said, so you're going to go in there. They're going to look at you for you, who you are, your potential. You're not going to put your foot in the door if you go in already with disclaimers that they don't want. So mm. that's why we did that. Mm. And so they, one kid had dreads, and I said, well, I don't think this is a good fit. So the social worker took him outside. He's like, I ain't going to cut my hair. I ain't going to cut my hair. I said, that's okay. I said, well, he doesn't have to come here. We got a line of 10 people waiting to come in. I had to We had to keep waiting. There. And so the social worker took him outside and shook him. She said, do you know how long I've been trying to get you just to get in front of and had it? She said, and I don't want to say this on the air, but she said, if she said cut your hair on your 
earlier part of your body. You said, you cut your hair. I've been trying to get you in that hair place. That's right. So he came, he said, oh, I'll cut my hair. I said, no. I said, no, we're not making people do anything they don't want to do. This has to come from you. I said, so, you know, there are other group homes that take young men just like that. So I said, but it was nice knowing you. I shook his hand, and I gave him a hug. So before the lady took off, he jumped out the car and came back on. He said, I had it. I want to, I want to stay here. I, I really want to stay here. He said, I want to be somebody. Mm. He said, I don't want to be like my uncle, my daddy, my cousin, all in jail. He said, I want to be somebody. Mm. He said, so anything you tell me to do, I do it. I said, are you sure? He said, yes, ma'am. First, he said, uh-huh. I said, uh, uh, excuse me? He said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and he came and he got his hair cut with all the boys. He kept the dress for a week. Because every two weeks he got a haircut. And he got his hair cut. A boy, he couldn't get out from in front of the mirror. He just thought he was so handsome. Oh, I just love my haircut. My hair. I just love my haircut. I said, you certainly look handsome. But in any event, uh, those are the standards that our young men uh, went through and we took them to a concert once a month. We took them to a symphony. We took them to plays and they would dress up in a shirt and tie. And, you know, they, can you imagine taking 28 African Americans, I had three homes, dressed up in a shirt and tie to a symphony. Mm. Everybody wants to know who are these young men. They're so well dressed and so well mannered and they just, everybody just wants to know who they were. He said, these unhappies, uh, we call them the super kids, mm. unhappy super kids. And I write about it in the book as to how people can take the worst kids that people have said they were worst kids and how you can turn them around. And some of the boys, I would say 90% of the boys when they came to unhappy's place on some type of medication. Wow. For hyperactivity. Mm. And I asked the boys, I said, why are you on medicine? He said, because I'm bad. Mm. I said, is that why you're taking medicine? Yes, ma'am. That's what the social worker told me. Mm. I said, well, if you're not sick, we're going to wean you off of that medication. Mm. If you're sick, that's a different story. But I don't have bad boys. Mm. I don't have kids taking medication because they're hyperactive. You get out there and play basketball and swimming, put you in all kinds of active stuff. So I like a happy uh, active kid. When I was teaching special ed, I told my parents, don't put kids on medication when they come to my classroom, please. Because I don't want a kid sleeping all day because of the medication. I want a real live kid that I can deal with them because I may have the teaching skills to deal with them. So it's just it's interesting how you work with young men and, and kids, period. And you find out they have so many gifts and talents that aren't tapped because someone has told them you're special ed, you're bad, you're not going to be anything, and they believe it, when I just turn it around and say, okay, let me tell you who you are, and then that's who they become. You know, and, and I think it's society is always trying to get you to accept the label, right? You're special ed, you're oh, this. That's what the school system is about, and I, and I fought against it when I was a, a super, I mean, assistant superintendent. Don't put any kids in special ed. I told the teacher, say, you can tell me why you can't deal with the 11, 12-year-old kid and you got a master's degree. Mm. So why you had to put him in a place? Special education is a service. It's not a place. So why are you going to put him in a place and somebody have their all excuse now why they can't teach him because they're in special ed? Mm. So don't put any kids in special ed. So in my school system, I rearranged my whole school system where I 
put my best teachers, especially at kids, because that's where they're needed. You don't need my master teachers teaching the gifted and talented. I need you there to teach the kids in special ed. And I give you more money than, first of all, I don't want to teach you, so then I said, oh, I'm going to get $500 more each semester. Well, I'll try. <laughs> now, I don't want you to tell me <laughs> you can teach these kids. This only I can teach them. Yeah, because I got a nephew specially. Yeah, I can I can teach them. Okay, well let's see. Because see, you have to give some incentives before teachers want to have a challenge. Because that means you got to work. Right. And so just different things I did at the at the school system level, and as well as at the uh, university level. Excellent. And so you wrote an award-winning memoir about your different experiences. It's titled Driven to Succeed, an inspirational memoir of lessons learned through faith, family, and favor. So tell us what's so inspiring about your memoir and tell us about some of the recognitions and awards that book has gotten. Well, we've won uh, as a featured author for the Congressional Black Caucus and as twice, the book won in 2016 and again in 2017. And then I won um, as featured author in the Association for the Study of African American Life and Culture for the Driven to Succeed book. And just last year, my cookbook won an award because the theme was Black Migration. And my recipes migrated up from the south of when we ate everything from the garden, from the orchard, and the barnyard. So my cookbook fit right into their theme of black migration. So I've been blessed that both of my books thus far have won uh, national awards and up for NAACP award. And now I've been asked to come to Charleston, South Carolina for the scholar national conference to present my cookbook uh, for the southern people who love to cook and love to uh, have cookbooks. So I've just been blessed to have those two books. And not only are they good books in themselves, um, the proceeds from the book are going to my unhappy scholarship fund at Coppin State, whereby any foster kids can go to college and can be paid for, because all foster kids have to stay on campus. Because you're basically homeless when you age out at 18. Mm -hmm. So most foster kids don't go to college uh, because they can't afford to stay on campus because that's where they have to stay. Not only do they have to stay on campus, but during the holidays and summers, when the other kids go home, they don't have a home to go to. Mm -hmm. So at Compton State, I pay for my boys to stay on campus during the holidays and weekends and during the summers. And it, since everybody knows me there, they take the boys in and give them a job to do, and they clean up the dorm and help around where they can get extra money so that they can, you know, buy the food and different things they need to do. But the scholarship fund helps to pay for those days when they're on campus, they have to live on campus, as well as the tuition. All right. I know Britain. Uh, you wanted to chime in. Britton, what, what questions do you have for Dr. Washington? Uh, once again, uh, hello, Dr. Washington. Uh, first off, I'm very um, appreciative and honored of, of all your efforts. 
because um, I know that they are truly uh, reforming the community. And it's interesting, as I advocate in the uh, criminal justice space, looking to close that school-to-prison pipeline, uh, your work is actively and effectively doing that. Um, and you mentioned something about the difference between the education culture uh, today from, from you know, what we're seeing today in schools uh, versus, you know, some years previous. Do our schools really train students today to succeed um, as, a, as a whole, holistically across the school board? Uh, we know some of the things that are happening um, through Southern Maryland, but are there some things nationwide are our schools really preparing our students to stay away from that school-to-prison pipeline and succeed? I talk about a lot of the things in my book, The Blueprint, and just quickly, schools are not doing all that they can do, and I don't want to say schools as if it's the, it's the building. Uh, it's just so much that, that teachers need that they don't get. You have a lot of teachers who are teachers who got the skills and they got the heart, but they're beat down so much with all the paperwork they have to do, all of the extra things they have to do, the lack of pay. They have to spend their own money on different things because they don't get the materials and the resources they need. And they don't get the help that they need with kids they may have some discipline problems, and the teachers may not know what to do. They don't get the training. And one of the things I used to do is train all of my teachers myself. I would, I, I did something very radical to the point that the, some of the principals called the mayor. Mm. I gave teachers more money than I gave the principal. <laughs> I said, because I need the money in the classroom where the teachers are teaching the kids. I don't need to pay my principals walking around the hallway, and many times they're not even in the school. I said, and, and the vice principal is the one that's running the school for the most part in terms of discipline. I said, so I'm going to give, when I, and the reason I did this, I asked my principal, I said, how many of you will go back to the classroom if I gave you the same money that I'm giving you now as a principal? And I had about 67% of the principals raise their hands. I was really, because I really enjoyed teaching, but they made hmm. me a principal. So I told the principals, now those who want to go back to the classroom, you will get the same money you're getting because I'm putting the money in the classroom where my teachers are. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons that schools are not doing what they could be doing because their teachers are being evaluated, or if the kids aren't learning, the teachers are being evaluated. And yet the teachers aren't given the resources to bring those kids up. And now that special education is part of the regular classroom. You know, they got these kids now, they're institutionalized into the regular classroom. And now teachers haven't gotten too much training on how to deal with them. They're being evaluated on how the students are achieving. The special education students are being tested now when they weren't before. They're tested with the regular kids and bring the teachers reports down, so teachers are just getting frustrated. So I just believe if I were more in charge now, 
I would write the whole ship and give the teachers the money. One of the things I did do when I was assistant superintendent, I wrote a grant. And that was when we were right getting ready to integrate special education to regular classroom and teachers weren't trained. I gave teachers, I did a cohort of 100 teachers a year. And they could take a, a master's degree course in special education free. And I, I gave them a stipend. But they had to teach at least 10 special education kids in their regular classroom for that master's degree. And they had to do it for five years. And then I did another grant where the teacher's aides could get a BS degree in special education, but they also had to agree to teach at least 10 special education kids in the regular classroom. Oh, I had a whole slew of people wanting to do that, but at first, they said, I don't want to teach those special ed kids in the regular classroom. If I wanted a math, if I wanted a degree in special education, I would have gotten it. I got a degree in LA. Oh, they were just going on. <laughs> so, but when I got that grant and I only wanted a cohort of 100, oh, I want to teach special ed. That's watching. Oh, I want to teach special ed. Oh, I love those kids. I really love those kids. <laughs> so we, <laughs> that's how we instituted special ed in Baltimore City and was very, very successful. <laughs> so teachers are not getting what they or to get, so no, the school system is not doing what's right. Because I don't think many school systems know what to do. You know, I told a principal, I said, you can't evaluate teachers unless you can get in the classroom and demonstrate to them what they didn't do that you're evaluating them on. Hmm. So if you can't demonstrate, then you shouldn't evaluate them. So I train all my principals what they look for. And when I go to evaluate my principals, I would just watch them, how they evaluate the teachers, and watch them demonstrate the lessons, because I taught them how to do that. But we need that systemically. We need it all over the state, all over the country, and give the teachers more money, and the teachers will use their skills and won't get so burnt out how to deal with these kids. And I need to tell the teachers how to teach kids from a positive standpoint. I had a program that I implemented in Virginia Beach, and it was ask not if they are gift, uh, if they are gifted, ask how they are gifted. Mm. And I gave them thirteen domains of giftedness, and every kid is gifted in at least three of those domains, not just academic. They are gifted in other domains if you know what to look for. So the whole school system had to come up with three domains for each kid is gifted. Don't tell me what well, this kid is not gifted at all. No, no. Every kid is gifted in something. That's no more than lunch and recess. <laughs> <laughs> you at least three gifts that the, kids like to do and can do and call it a gift. Th those were my and gifts early in my career. Same, same gifts. Same gifts <laughs> Matter of fact, they're, 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 my, they're my gifts today as well. <laughs> If he's a gang leader, that's a gift. He's a leader. Yeah. And you just have to turn it around and make him the leader of your class. Yeah. So anyway, it's just something that teachers need to be trained and paid and tell the kids who they are. And they will rise to the occasion. So, it just needs to be done nationwide. So, and, and I think that's what you said is very interesting. So they, the teachers should really approach the students with the, working off the assumption that they are gifted, not asking if they're yeah. gifted. They are. 
I mean, that, that's a game but changer. You know, one of the things I did when I was a professor at, at Coppin, when my grad students walk in my classroom, I tell them, everybody, I told them this is the A class. And they say, oh, I, I, I'll be satisfied with the C. I have to get the wrong class. Mm. This is the A class. Now, you already got an A. Everybody has an A in here already. Mm. You just have to keep it. So that means everything you pass into me should be a C. And if it's not an A, I'm going to give it back to you and let you correct it, and you can turn it in again. Because mm. this is only an A class. But you learn from your mistakes. Look at your mistakes, what it you didn't do. So if I'm willing to grade it again, you'd be willing to do it again. If you're not willing to do it again, then get the heck out of my class. <laughs> and you shouldn't be a teacher. Because mm. we don't need mediocre teachers teaching kids to be excellent. And so, but I, I mean, my students just love to redo stuff, and then they go back to their classroom and look at the kids who got a D and say, well, you know, redo that again. You know, you can do that again. Do it again. So, okay, good. So if he got a D, he didn't understand it. Now he understands it. Why don't you let him do it and get an A? You're not the teacher to someone who's learned what you're taught. So if you satisfy with your kids getting the D, then you're not really a teacher. Who knows how many times it may take a kid to do stuff? Mm. If he takes them three times, then let him do three times. Long he gets it, that's why those kids do so well on my all of my students who took my my class, those kids do so much better on the on the state test. Because they use my triple E concept. Excellence is expected from everyone. That's my concept mm. that I write about in my book. And you allow the kids to do it again if they make a mistake. That's why Princeton has an eraser. Mm. Because you're going to make a mistake. We make mistakes as adults. You write a paper, you misspell a word, you kick yourself. Oh, my God. Why did I know better? Why did I do that? Well, so what? Just make it correct. Do it again. And then you got your eight. So I punish the person for they made the mistake when they know the answer now. So, you know, if teachers got to change. Kids make a D and, and you give them a D and the kids borrow the paper up and throw it in the trash can. But my foster boys, because I had another concept for them for making A's, they would go back and catch the teachers. Oh, Ms. Jones, can I redo this paper? You know, I know what my mistake is now. Can I redo it? The teacher would say, yeah, but you're not going to give you another grade. And they said, I don't worry about that because I had to give them like $10 for every A. <laughs> Five dollars every B, and if you made a C, they owe me twenty. Mm. And I call it easy learn, <laughs> earn as you learn. And I got that concept with my granddaughter, my nieces and nephews in Virginia Beach. Everybody knows that Carl I had it to give me the report. I had I got ten A's and uh, six A's and two B's. I said, so how much do I owe you? So I add it up, add it up. <laughs> and so I'm paying out money to everybody, even the kids in my church. So they know education is an investment. And so they, I pay them for that called earn as you learn. And so if the teacher doesn't change the grade, they don't care because they got their $85 for my head. So they were earning so much money. I said, don't get such good grades. You're all breaking the bank. Give me some seats. <laughs> so y'all can owe me some money. Now, I had no I had it. We want A's and B's. 
I said, well, you're breaking the bank. I got to get loans, get them a loan from you all to pay you. Mm. And what I said, I had, I loaned you some of my money. I said, it's okay, you got that much, huh? So, you know, it's just something that you got to come up with techniques for kids who want to learn. And and that's what I've always used. My daughter, one's a, one's a doctor, one's a physician, and one's an attorney. I use that on them all the way through middle school, high school, and even college, law school, and medical school. So, you know, it works. So, the kids ought to learn because it's the right thing to do. They ought to just want to learn. Okay, well, do you want to go to work if you like your job and they're not paying you? <laughs> In fact, I really think kids ought to get paid to go to school. If you tell the truth, pay them to go to school. Hmm. Why not? <laughs> and then pay them more to go to school. Dr. Washington, I am definitely putting you down as a recommendation for every civic board, school board, and economic uh, education, economic council there is. Well, I, I was, I was. Well, look, I got some ideas when I when I was asked to serve on the National uh, Maryland Association for Youth and Families. I said, well, you all don't really want to hear what I have to say. Mm. You're not going to put my name on just to say my name. Well, you don't need to come to the meetings. I go, we just want to put your name. No, no, it doesn't work that way. If I have some ideas and you all don't adhere to them, then why am I serving on your committee? Because mm. I have some ideas over the years that will work. If people just do it, say, oh, no, that's politically, that's, uh, that's not political. No, not politically correct right now. You know, it's not election year. That, well, the kids are here now. <laughs> you know, teachers being evaluated on now. I'm not care about a. It's not political year, not election year yet. That's next four years. You could have lost the soul by that time. Mm. So yeah, I have a lot of ideas as to what work with my kids. One of the things with my my daughter who's a lawyer, and my one who is a a doctor. First year of medical school, I went out and got her a. A, a desk sign that says Sherelle uh, A. Washington, M.D., hmm. and put it in her room at the medical school. She said, uh, Ma, you know, it's kind of early. I said, no, it's not. She said, this is what I, what I want you to see yourself as. Hmm. Sherelle A. Washington, M.D. And she kept looking at it, beautiful sign to put on your desk. And for my daughters in law school, I got her some business cards. Cheryl Wild Washington, Esquire, graduate May 1997. This is like 1995. So she said, Ma, I said, pass your cards out. That's who you're going to become when I get you some when you graduate. So you got to have kids to see who they are, who they can be, who they're going to be. And then they keep looking at those cards and say, hmm, that looks pretty good. That looks pretty good. And so they give them all kinds of awards. And one of the things I'm going to do a book about all of the poems that I used to put around my daughter's room in Charlottesville when she was at UVA Medical School. Don't quit. And this, that, all this poem, positive, this, that, and the other. Just to, and they were there, and she would see them but not see them. But then later she told me, she said, Mom, you know, all those poems just kind of stuck in my head. Mm. When I wanted to give up, you know, I just saw this poem. I saw this other poem and this poem. So I'm going to gather all those poems and put them in a book for parents and kids who just need some something to inspire them. 
And sometimes just a word or two that you need to put you over the hump. Of I would give up, but I thought about that poem. Mm. The phenomenal woman. Or this, that, and the other. The boys had, you know, the, the phenomenal black man. And what is a boy versus what is a man. And, you know, they see these things and, and they say, hmm, I am a man. You know, that's who I want to be. I want to be a man, not a boy. And it talks about the difference between the two. It's just different things like that. I want to just share as much as I can now that I retired and I have more time to do that sort of thing. So, so Dr. Washington, you mentioned that at certain times you had the, the some of the foster boys living in your home. Like, what mm -hmm. what was a what was a normal day like with I guess you, at some point you probably had your, your 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 foster boys as well as your your daughters and you had like this 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 extended family I mean like what what was what was a normal day like? Well, first of all, when I first started, um, I, if you read the book, the story goes I was driving from one of my schools and I saw these three boys on the corner in the middle of the day. And I looked at my watch, it was like 1 o'clock. And I'm thinking, this is my district. Why are these kids standing on the corner? Mm. And so I stopped the car and said, excuse me, why are you out of school? And they just looked at each other and just looked at me. I said, I'm talking to you. Pardon me? I said, why are you out of school? And he said, who are you? I said, I'm the assistant superintendent, and this is my district, and you standing on my street in the middle of the day. I just want to know why are you out of school instead of being one of my schools? And I said, well, we're foster kids. I said, so what do you mean? He said, well, we don't have an address, so we don't know what school we're supposed to go to. Mm. I said, what do you mean you don't have an address? He said, well, we, we, we don't have an address. Said, so where do you live? And he pointed to one of the other guys. He said, we lived in his grandmama's basement. And I said, oh, so the grandmama knows you there? He said, no, ma'am. I said, oh, so you just, uh, so why are you out of school? He said, well, you know, I ran away from one group home, and the other one said, I ran away from a foster home, and so we just have not gone to school. And this was like February, and they haven't been in school since October. Mm -hmm. So I said, get in the car. So, Man, I said, get in the car. Mm -hmm. And they reluctantly got in the car, and, and I think back. And somebody said, those kids could have strangled you and killed you and so on. But I'm from the country. Everybody knew everybody. <laughs> so I didn't have to see these 12, 13 years old boys. So I got in the car and I was taken back to my office. And one said, Miss, uh, could we get some food? We haven't eaten all day. I said, okay. So we stopped by McDonald's, got them some food. Then I took them back to my office and I told the secretary to call social service. And so we did, and so they, they said, who is it? And I told them, they said, well, you know, well, yeah, they run away, and so we catch up with them when we can because they've been running away, so a lot of paperwork. So we just we get them when we can. So I said, well, I have them. So when you get when I get left my number and everything, I'm thinking they're going to call me later that day, or certainly by the next day. So I thought I'd take them home for one night. Hmm. Now, of course, my daughter's been by the time in college. So I got in the bedroom. So I took them home, washed the clothes, and gave them talk about, you know, who they are, what they can become, and so on. And so and I took them back with me, because now I'm the sister of the family. So I took them with me to one of my principal schools, and I gave it to him. I said, I got three foster boys, and I've been school since October. 
given one of your best teachers his associate worker's number, and I gave them your number, so if they call, get a home, then, you know, just let me know so I can say goodbye to the board. Well, at the end of the day, social work hadn't called. The boys are still there. So I picked them up, took them back home, and if this went on for several weeks, hadn't heard from social service. And I was taken to the school board meeting, and I gave them an assignment. At that time, they had the Polaroid cameras. You buy the disposable cameras. So I got each one a camera. I said, take pictures at the school board meeting, and I want you to interview. I gave each person an interview. Would you write it up and tell me what you asked them and what did they say and so on. And boy, I was so blown away with their skills. And oh, they just got the hang up. They just thought they were little reporters. <laughs> and they were interviewing the various person and, and had to write it up when they got home. And I said, these kids are not dumb at all. So after three weeks, four weeks, I heard from social service. said, you got foster boy you took home? I said, yeah. I've been waiting for you. I said, you can't just do that. You just can't take foster kids home. you got to be licensed. I said, uh, well, I don't plan to keep them. You're waiting for you on the call. They said, well, in the meanwhile, you got to be licensed to be a foster. Otherwise, you know, you have to let them go. I said, we need to let them go. Go where? Mm. Are you ready for them? They said, well, no, we, you know, we haven't gotten around to that yet. Mm. I said, well, come on out and, and whatever you need to do. So they came out and measured my house and checked the refrigerator temperature and the water temperature and, and got down on the knees and measured the room size. And I said, tell me something. These boys were on the corner. Didn't have any place. And now I have a daughter in law school, one in medical school, and you got to measure the same room that they stayed in before they went off to college. <laughs> Does that make any sense? He said, well, no, this is just what it got to do. So my house became certified to keep foster kids that were hanging on the corner. Mm -hmm. And so after several months and I decided to just keep them, then I said, okay, I'm still assistant superintendent. I long board meetings and I hired a nanny and housekeeper so they could keep the boys while they were doing the homework. Then I decided to open up a group home because mm -hmm. I needed a staff and more work. So I opened up a group home. So that was how that all started with unhappy slaves. That's how I started keeping them in my home first. Then eventually opened up a group home, which took me three and a half years to go through the regulations to open up a group home. I told them, I said, I don't want to do a business. I just want to keep them kids. No, you got to have a business for a group home. You got to have a workbook and an employee's manual, and you got to do this and you got to that. And oh, my Lord. So I'm a, by this time, I am the vice president of Coppin State. So at the same time the vice president raised the money, I'm opening up a group home, which took me three and a half years to do. So again, you know, if the law puts something on your heart, if I'd known it was going to take that long, I probably wouldn't have started. <laughs> but sometimes, as the young man was saying earlier, when you go to the next level and you have more problems, if you know what the problem is going to be, you may want to stay there as an employee. <laughs> but the, the advantages outweigh some of the disadvantages because you may be working for yourself, but you may not eat either. But you may be hungry, happy, mm. as opposed to being full and, and depressed on, on a job mm. that you feel mm. that you're not being utilized, your talent. Hungry, so happy. that's how I end up keeping the boys and mm. then start a group home. And, and the rest, 22 years later, over 100 across the board. 
Wow. Yeah, what what a great story. And so you, you mentioned earlier that you you're donating the proceeds of your books to Aunt Hattie Scholarship. Can you tell us how can people contribute to your scholarship? Yes, they can go to my website, which is www.drhnwashington.com. D like in David R. Leroy. H for my first name, N as in Nancy, Washington.com. And on my website, it has a link there. If you want to donate, you can click that link and go straight to the scholarship fund at Coppin State University. And it's tax deductible. And you get a, a thank you letter from uh, Coppin State University Development Foundation. And the money go into that scholarship fund. And they give me a report you know, every month uh, who has donated. So in addition to them writing a thank you letter, I also turn around and write a thank you letter to them as well. That is great. So drhnwashington.com is the site yes. where people can Our go. Website. And you can also purchase the books from that website as well. Fantastic. Or, or Amazon. They should be on Amazon as a decent, uh, July the 2nd because I just formed my own publishing company. And the book is being revised and reprinted under my publishing company, Washington Publishing Enterprises. Hmm. Both the cookbook and Driven to Succeed will be now under my publishing company. It can be ordered from Amazon as of July the 2nd, but right now you can get them from my website. And when you get them from my website, they're autographed by me personally. All right. I'm, I'm going to ask this question. I know, Britton, I know this is a question you're very interested in. Uh, Dr. Washington, in the, in the cookbook, what are some of those uh, those dishes in there? <laughs> Ooh, boy. Well, my famous one that everyone loves is my homemade bread pudding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then my three cheese mac and cheese, uh, my home fried uh, potatoes. I give you recipe for sweet potatoes fried. I don't know if you've had fried sweet potatoes mm. or fried uh, fried potatoes with smothered onions, and then my chili, oh my goodness, <laughs> my chili was what my aunt uh, in Norfolk, who had three stores, three restaurants, and people used to come from miles around for a chili dog. Mm. So I perfected her chili so that people didn't know whether it was my chili or her chili. All right, all right. So many of the recipes are from the country. <clears throat> But also, since I lived with my aunt at three restaurants, a lot of my recipes also came from her. But the country ones are the cobblers. You know, we pick the pieces off the tree, mm. a peach cobbler, a blackberry cobbler, apple cobbler, an uh, apple and pear cobbler. You ever had an apple and pear cobbler? Never. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Or mixed berries. You have the raspberries, the blackberries, and the gooseberries. Mixed berries, cobbler, or pies. And just the, the whole potato, sweet potatoes, and you have your, your um, what you call the turnovers, mm. with apple turnovers and sweet potato turnovers. Uh, you have your stuck attached. Everything's fresh from the garden. Mm. And you have your omelet with the onions and the, the green peppers, the red peppers, and all kinds of things from the garden. Uh, fresh butter, 
uh, since you can't turn it from the cow, I have certain butters that I recommend for people to eat fresh. There are certain things that are good fat, and then there are bad fats. And in the back of my book, I have a whole directory of things that you can substitute, still eating healthy, by buying things from the store, since you're not living in the country now, but how you can still make healthy dishes and desserts so that you can taste the countryness of the Southern Comfort Foods but not being um, as fat as, as people tend to make it. For instance, my bread pudding. I use three kinds of milk. I have almond milk. I have fat-free, lactate-free milk. And then I have carnation milk. Mm. And I have three kinds of sugar. I have honey. I have stevia. And then I have, um, you've heard of uh, honey, stevia, and then you've heard of, um, uh, what is it, um, truvia. Mm. These are natural sugars mixed with honey, and you can't even tell that you're not eating sugar. Mm. Then I put plenty of eggs that are good for you in there. And when you eat this pudding, it's just so puddingy. And just... <laughs> You can't figure out. <laughs> That's what I want, some pudding pudding, boy. That's what I'm talking about. Dr. Washington, can, can, you, can you take me, can you take me in? Can you, can you take me in? I'm having some challenges. I just want you to take me in for a little while. You know, I want to start this thing all over again. Give me some pudding pudding. No, Ted. Ted, Ted. What topped it off is my honey rum butter sauce. Oh, <laughs> man. Of the, oh, my goodness. Oh, my. Of the bread pudding. And, and people just, my faculty at conference is like, are you going to bring a bread pudding for the faculty meeting? I said, look now, you know, or you can bring your three cheese mac and cheese. Oh, how about your pot of chili? I said, you all don't know what you want. <laughs> and so for my whole family, when I'm invited for Thanksgiving or just come down for a visit, it's like, now, before you leave, you know you have to make one of those bread puddings so I can freeze it mm. or, or one of those mac and cheese. So I think I was invited for Thanksgiving dinner. I got to cook. Mm. You know good and well you're going to have to cook. Mm. So I've been cooking for years. I love, love, love cooking. It's like a therapy mm. for me. Then I love people to enjoy my dishes. So I just decided I put all my recipes down in a cookbook for my grandkids because, you know, when I was talking about the country, they said, Grandma, you really caught a chicken, live chicken, and, and plucked the chicken, <laughs> and they thought ate the chicken? I said, yes, baby, that's what we did in the country. They just couldn't fathom, like, you know, well, so when I go to the supermarket, <laughs> the chicken, uh, somebody plucked those chickens. I said, yep, that's what you're eating, chickens that used to be running around in the yard. <laughs> And wow. then, you know, for them to see gardens and, and things of that sort, so I said, let me write down these things for grandkids or young people who don't know how to cook from scratch, uh, a, a TV dinner or, or something that you jack in the box <laughs> or something you put the water with, master tape, put the water with, they think that's home cooking. Mm. I said, no, that's not home cooking from scratch, baby. That, that is, I don't know what that is, but it's not, it's not healthy eating. You would eat southern comfort foods that's the old-fashioned way. Before there was such thing as organic, uh, we were cooking organic in the country. Didn't know it's called organic. <laughs> 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 Only thing we got from the store was sugar and flour. 
Uh. Everything else is got from the garden. Uh, the tree, the orchard, or, or the barnyard, the chicken and the eggs, and killing the hogs every year. And, you know, it, it just, um, you didn't think about it. It just, everything was fresh. I don't think I had a candy bar until I was probably 10 years old. Mm. And that was a man who used to come around in his car called a Raleigh man. And he would sell different things for the household and so on. Then he had candy bars, the, the Murray Jane mm -hmm. candy bars and the squirrel nuts and, and the BB bats. Do you remember those? You <laughs> 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 can get those there in Cracker Barrel. Mm. But uh, and then we had some extra money one time because a relative came down from Baltimore and always gives us some money. But I don't know what we're going to do with this money because, you know, no place to spend it. We live in the country. Mm. And boy, we ran to the Raleigh man. We all bought a candy bar or one of these chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, coconut bars, if you've seen those. Mm. It's a Mary Jane, it's a squirrel. Boy, we thought we were had something. That was the first time I had had the real candy. That, this is most of the time, you want something sweet, you're going to get a peach off the tree or eat an apple or pick some blackberries. And, right. Or go to get a tomato off the vines or watermelon. But this is this is this is something you was a, you know, a vice president of Coppin and running a a, a, a group a foster home with tackling a chicken, and then, <laughs> and then <laughs> tackled a chicken, stripped him down, <laughs> wow, <laughs> and made a meal out of. At the same time. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was before. Okay. Back in the day, but I'm from a two-room schoolhouse in the country. Mm -hmm. We had an outhouse. We had two teachers. Mrs. Brown taught kindergarten to fourth grade in one classroom, and Mr. White taught the fifth grade to the eighth grade. Mm. So everything I learned as a teacher, I learned from Mrs. Brown. And when I hear teachers say, well, I've got one grade, and, and if all the kids were on the same level, in my fourth grade class, I could teach them, but they're all on different levels. I said, what if you had kindergarten and fourth grade in the same classroom? Mm -hmm. you know, oh, no, that's impossible. Oh, well, I couldn't do that. Yes, you could. Mm -hmm. That's what Ms. Brown did. Mm -hmm. The fourth graders would teach the second graders, and the third graders would teach the first graders. So if you learn something, you turn around and teach somebody else. That, that's how I learned to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. That's why I want to be a teacher. So... Teachers, I tell them, if kids know something, and you got kids who don't know stuff, you let those kids mentor other kids. You can't try to teach them everything. Because I don't care how good you are a teacher, only 60% of the kids are going to get what you taught them at any one time. Only 60. I don't mm. care how good you think you are. They're on different levels. And then you got to circle back around and get those other 40% and keep the other 6% from being bored. Are you trying to reach all of them? How are you going to do that? You get some of those who already know it to work for some of the other kids that didn't get it. So what you're doing to those kids, they're reinforcing their knowledge. Yeah. And then the other kids feel good that they are teaching us by somebody that they're peers. And so it's just a way you got to know the techniques of teaching. These kids love to teach other kids something they've learned. And they aren't bored now because now you're trying to reach the other 80%, 90%, 100%. So now all these kids got to be tested. So you better try to reach those other 40% because those other 40% are going to keep your classroom from getting the score that they deserve. 
Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, God, I got to teach those of other forces. Yes, you can't just teach the 50% that you're going to get. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. No child left behind. That's the law now. Mm-hmm. No child left behind meaning the 100%. You got to reach all 100% of your kids. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what, that's the way it is. Do you, Dr. Wash, do you find, I see a theme through your life and through, most people are trying to maintain the status quo and trying to do what's always been done and trying to take the same approach that's always been taken. But you seem to think differently. You seem to think outside of that box and to look at different ways to solve these problems. Is that something that just that you feel like you developed over time or you've always just thought against the grain? You know, when I was in that two-room schoolhouse and Mr. White was absent one day and Ms. Brown called on me out of all the kids to teach the fifth through the eighth grade. Mm. I'm thinking, why me? Why, why did she think I, I'm in the fourth grade, so why did she think I could teach wow. the fifth through the eighth grade? Because Mr. White was absent, they didn't get substitutes in the country. And so I think since that time, I've known that God sort of had something in me that people saw in me. So if I felt like I didn't go along with something, I wouldn't join in. Mm-hmm. And then I found that teachers and different people come to me and say, Watch, what do you think? And I would just look. And I would say to myself, Now, do you really want to know what I think? <laughs> or you just ask it? Right. And they would say, Well, no, I really want to know what you think. And I would give them a whole different way of looking at it. Right. And they would say, hmm, you think about it that way. But everybody else is going along to get along. Uh-huh. And I never felt the need to do that. Maybe because I grew up in the country and, and pulled away, and I wasn't worried about making any friends, because I didn't want to really make any friends, because I just figured that I'm going to be pulled away from them like I pulled away from all my good friends down in the country. So I just did my own thing. I was a loner, didn't mind being a loner. A lot of people come to Washington, would you help me? I wasn't Washington. Neil, would you help me with my work? They knew I was smart. Because I remember stuff and I made good grades and, and, and so, so far, popular kids would come and pull me to Washington. Uh, Hannah, would you help me with this? I can't seem to get my trigonometry. Would you help me with my chemistry? Would you? And I would, but I didn't really want to be their friend. So I was always somewhat different because I didn't feel the need to go along. Mm-hmm. If I had a thought about something, I'm not going to sit there and go along. I'd be silent first. And I think people could see the expression on my face like, well, I wonder what she's thinking. Just like when I was, became the vice president, my president gave me a $3 million loan, and I ended up raising $8 million mm-hmm. because I felt $3 million, and I'm a vice president. You know, I got to prove that I earned my position, not not that I applied for it, I was appointed. So, you know, people say, well, wonder why, who, why she got that, and who does she know, and so on. So that means I, I had to really prove that I knew what I was doing, which I really didn't, because I never, you know, raised the money before. And so I figured that the Lord put me in that position so one of the first things I thought to do was to see how much money all the staff was was giving. 
And if you're working for a university and you're not giving any money, something wrong with that picture. Right. So I motivated everybody on campus. I told them I want 100% participation of every last employee, from the ground people, from the secretaries to the vice president. It is no more than $1. And if you don't have a dollar, I will loan you a dollar. But I want 100% participation of everybody, because when I go to Ford Motor Company, the Bank of America, the first thing they're going to ask me is what percentage of your staff is giving money back to the college. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell them 100%. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have a dollar, I'm going to loan it to you. And I know who you are because I got the list. <laughs> and so they're like, whoa. So that was radical, you know, like no one's ever asked them for money before. Well, I can't raise any money and get money from other people. You are working here. You're not giving any money. And so after that, everybody, you know, I had competition between departments. You know, I, the math department was going to give me more money than the English department and this, that, and that. And boy, said, what's the prize? I don't know yet. Don't worry about the prize. I just want the competition. Mm-hmm. And so at the end, they got a pencil. <laughs> a pencil? I'm not putting any money out for prizes. I'm trying to raise money. So you get a pencil, you get a pencil, you get a pencil. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, Washington, you just... Uh, so, but yeah, I've sort of done things differently. And when they told me in Montgomery County that I would not be able to open a house, build a house from the ground up, I'm not going to be able to get approval. The neighbors are not going to want me to come in, and this is not going to happen. And oh my goodness, then it's like, okay, well, you see, even though it took me six years to build that house from the ground up, it was the number one model in the whole country for, for uh, foster kids. Mm. Yeah, keep it all the way from Russia to come and look at that house to model the house. If I'd known what I know now, I wonder why they want to see this house. Mm. Yeah, they came over to see the house and, and to see uh, what it was to pattern after that. And the Virgin Island wants me to come open the house in the Virgin Island, et cetera. Mm. But no, I've, I've done things differently, I think, all of my life. And because I've let God lead me, I've let my faith. Mm. lead me. I pray about things before I just jump into it. I just say, now, Lord, you put me in this position and you have to tell me what to do and how to do it and when to do it, how to relate to different people, how to react to this particular uh, situation, and I just kind of calmly do things in a way that is Christian ladylike, but at the same time, you're ruling with the silk Iron hand, you know what I mean? Like my foster boy, no, hmm. I'm only going to say something once, and I'm going to say it nicely. And I expect for you to do it the first time that I say it. Hmm. And, and they understand that. Is that you understand? And when my staff is talking to you, I handpick every last one of my staff. So if you ever curse at them, you're cursing at me. Hmm. If you ever talk back to them, you're talking back to Aunt Harry. We're treating you with kindness and with respect, and that's the way we expect for you to treat each other and treat my hand-picked staff. Is that clear? All right. Don't let them have to call me on the phone because you didn't obey. You don't want to come to the phone to talk to her. I give you my allowance if you just don't tell her hand. Just don't tell her hand. Please don't tell Because they think that I think they're the best thing since life breathe. They think that I think they're the cat meow, which I want them to think that. 
So they don't want to let me down because they think that I think that they are somebody. Mm. So if I talk to them, my talk is silence first. Hmm. I had, are you there? Are you there? <laughs> yes, Tavon, I'm just thinking. Mm. Why don't you tell me what happened yourself? Now, I've heard from the staff, but I just can't seem to believe it. Because mm. you're not the type of kid. Now, tell me what happened. And then he's going, well, well, oh, you know, he did the... Tavon, tell me what made you do that. Because that's not you. You got a head on your shoulder. You're smarter than that. Now, tell me what triggered that behavior, blah, blah, blah. Now, now, now tell me. Make me know that you're not going to do that again. Yeah, and then they got to think through all of these, you know, like, uh, what I'm doing is, is working with their mind, mm -hmm. telling them who they are. They're telling them this is not your usual behavior, so I don't expect it again. So how do I know that you're not going to do it again? Tell me what you're going to do to ensure that you're not going to do that again. They got to think about that. Then after they tell me, well, you know, I'm just going to, and now tell me what are the consequences that you should really, uh, I, I don't want to say suffer, but what are the consequences that should happen now? They said, well, maybe I should not get my allowance, and maybe I should uh, not go to uh, the golf uh, outing. Maybe I should not, uh, maybe I should go to bed early. They come up with the whole litany of stuff. I said, okay, you came up with that, but you tell them, come up with five consequences. And after they come up with five, I said, now pick three. And they said, well, maybe I wouldn't go. I said, well, okay, that sounds like a plan. I said, you write that down, and I want you to sign it and give it to the staff. And that lets me know you're never going to do that again. Okay? Oh, yes, ma'am. Okay, let's go. And speak back to the staff. So the staff come and say, okay, the, uh, so now what I had, I said, he's going to write that contract, give it to you, and then the three things he's not going to be able to do, and then we go from there. They said, oh, how do you think they're going to work? I said, we'll see. Hmm. And most times, that's what people you do, you let them join in the punishment. You let them choose the punishment. Hmm. Hmm. And you let them, now after he gave me five, I only said pick three. Now, he's so glad he didn't get all five. Right. Then it now it's like, okay, that's good. And then he's still on my good side, my good list, and this, that, and the other. And so, you know, just techniques that I've used over the years with my daughters and teaching special ed kids that come to me at that moment. Well, and we're that. come to me and okay. yeah, we're, huh? I would say we're definitely thankful for you thinking differently and putting these different measures in place because the community is in a much better place because of you. So if uh, our listeners want to contact you as far as speaking engagements, is it the drhnwashington.com? Is that the best way for them to reach you? Uh, yeah, on my website, there's a form okay. that they can book me and ask them any number of questions like, you know, First, do you have any money? Yes, no. <laughs> you fill out that form. If you want me to come pro bono, I'd like to know that. And how many people in the audience, and how long you'll be speaking, what type of audience is it, round table, or theater style. The form they fill out, 
then they give me a call and they put their date down, who's the contact person, and then we go from there. And I do a lot of speaking for free. Mm-hmm. And then we do uh, speaking for people who got money and want to do corporate type of training, corporate diversity training or leadership training, productivity training. I do all that for corporations who can pay, but a lot of my nonprofits, et cetera. And sometimes I do book signings in a nonprofit, and I will split my proceeds from the book signings. So it just depends on the nonprofit that caused me to do something. I split it with them, then I split the other half with my foster board scholarship fund. Excellent. Excellent. So it's really been a pleasure, Dr. Washington, to have you on our show. We are, we're about to go to our Round the Horn segment where we give our listeners kind of a final closing thought. Uh, Dr. Washington, do you have a closing thought that you would want to leave our listeners with to remember you by? Well, I, I suppose in terms of parenting, because I've been the parent to the foster kids and to my, my daughters and, and other kids that are not in the kin with their friends, I tell parents, don't try to be your kid's friend hmm. as, you, as they're coming up. You be the parent. They may like what you're saying or they may not agree, but you agree to disagree. But you stick to your guns and be the parent. And then when they're grown, like my two daughters, we are very, very close now. And, I mean, just talk almost every day. But at first, from age 14 to 18, they stayed upset. Why we got to be read a book a week? Why, 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 why we got to uh, listen to vocabulary words every night? None of our friends have to read a book a week. Why do we have to learn a Bible verse every time we sit down to eat and we can't say Jesus well? Why we got to do... So, you know, they, they just... Why, why, why? And, I, and I, you give them a reason, like this is education, blah, blah. But then you finally say, because I said so, that's why. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And so just try to be their parent, not their friend. I guess if I leave anything. And just keep... Stay positive with kids. Give them, I call it three by three by three. Give them three praises a day. Call your kids' name three times a day. Believe it or not, a lot of parents just say, hey, come on, do this, do that, do that. Call the kids' name three times a day. Give them three praises a day. And give them three touches a day. Whether a pat on the head, a pat on the hand, or a hug. Uh, they need the three touches. Whether you just touch the hand, touch the head, or give them a hug. Three, call the name three times, give them three praises a day. Three times three times three works like a charm. Mm. That's mm. how I leave it. Anyway, you teach your parent or what, do the same thing. Three by three by three. Great. That is great. Well, thank you again, Dr. Washington. Ted? It's my pleasure being with you, Eric, and, and your co-host. I certainly enjoyed it. would like to know more about what they do. If there's anything I can do to help you guys with your company, corporations, or what have you, uh, do all that type of training as well. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. So, You're so, certainly welcome. This has been this is a tough act to follow. I'm telling I mean, you. I'm just, you know, just <laughs> honored. You know, there were some times I felt, you know, I didn't know if it was a little dust in there. I, you know, my eyes got a little dry. You know, I was yeah. just listening to some of these things that, you, that you've done. I mean, just... <laughs> Just remarkable. Sometimes you meet some folks, you just feel like you're just a better person 
because you had an opportunity to come in there in their presence and just the things that you've done you know within the, the community and, and just some of the tools and techniques that you talked about I definitely need to uh, look at read the book because um, you know I, a lot of these things I, I can see how they could be applicable within 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 our uh, within the business I mean because it's just things mm-hmm. are just so kind of motiv- motivational and I think it just can be these things just can be applied to people yes. right and just kind of how you could do that and just the whole excellence expected from everyone mm-hmm. right? that just really kind of mm-hmm. stuck with uh that's with true belief. so so again thank true you uh, concept. absolutely so thank you very much again and uh you know the you next you're welcome next time we'll we'll meet in person and we can get some three cheese three cheese macaroni and cheese and <laughs> I know your eyes got dry, but your mouth was watering. Well, well, let me tell you, 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 you already, you already know. And then you said it was all, you know, kind of, kind of uh, ca- calorie conscious. I was like, okay, we we good, eh? <laughs> Yeah, without a doubt, it's light, it's nice and light, and, and of course, the, you know, the almond milk is fat-free, lactate-free, and then the carnation—you can't beat that good old carnation milk. <laughs> all right. So, Britton? I just, uh, I was going to tell Ted earlier, uh, my pitch to uh, Dr. Washington was going to be, I'm going to go back to school, get like some certificate or something. I'm going to send them my report card. I don't need no money. <laughs> Pay me in cobbler and pudding. Hey, Britton, we got to get some, we got to get some of that, put, that puddingy pudding. Well, that's that's that putting boy. With the rump sauce, with the rump sauce, get a hundred butter rump sauce. Oh my goodness! Yeah, you got to make some grades to get your ten dollars per A and do a five dollars per B and twenty dollars your B and get a C. <laughs> well, I I I'll be a honor roll if 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 it's a cobbler and putting pudding at the end of this. <laughs> but I would but, have uh, Eric had the range to have to bring one. To you guys, maybe not come to the studio. Absolutely. Yeah, we Absolutely. gotta we gotta make that happen for sure. All right. Yes, indeed. So as far as my around the horn, I mean, I'm just gonna really kind of piggyback on some of the things that Dr. Washington pointed out. I was, I think I've taken more notes. You and me both. <laughs> so the things that Dr. Washington was I've saying. Been in school today. Uh, creating winners instead of picking looking to pick winners, yeah. you know, yeah. asking mm-hmm. how they're gifted, mm. not if they're gifted. Yeah. And mm-hmm. excellence is expected from everyone. You was looking at my paper. Yeah. I, I was those cheating are, off of your paper. Those are all the things right. I captured. <laughs> but I mean, those, those are, those, they have one thing in common, this idea of just having that positive perspective, you know, and it's mm-hmm. funny, like I, I talk to business owners, I'll be coaching someone and I say, tell me what, tell me what went well this week. And they literally struggle yeah. because it's, the focus is on the problems and, and the focus is on mm-hmm. everything that's going wrong and the negatives. And But I think if we take Dr. Washington's approach mm-hmm. and start having more of a positive and expecting the good things. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, you look at a child and you expect that child to succeed. I think yeah. just that by itself can make a difference oh, yeah. in somebody's life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's some A's that I had left on the table. If I would have had a chance right. to go back and, erect, and take, keep doing it till I got it, shh, mm-hmm. it would have been 4.0. Yeah. 
Because in most of these these kids, I know I've done mentoring things. They don't hear that in their house. No. They don't hear you're smart, no. you're talented, no. you can do it. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. They live up or live down to your expectation. Either when the glass is half full or half empty. That's it. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Well, again, Dr. Washington, I want to thank you for being on the 30-minute hour. And for everyone, you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on YouTube. Just type in the 30-minute hour into the search bar. Just remember, we are not your everyday podcast. Until next time, have a great one.